This is CNT Talk. Every week, two friends debate the issues of the ages as we agree to disagree. It's never politically correct, but it's always entertaining. Join us tonight so you can sound knowledgeable at work tomorrow. We're smacking you upside the head with the hammer of truth. Welcome to the show. Hello, hello. Welcome to our show. It's post-turkey. Um, I know Tony had to uh, sleep for a week, right, with your turkey? No, I didn't. I didn't have to sleep for a week. I I don't know whether we talked about this. I'm um, I'm not a huge fan of turkey. I don't That's dislike my- turkey. Uh, I will eat it. And actually, we made it this year in a brine. Oh, which yeah. we hadn't done before. So it was very, very good for turkey. And with all the other stuff on the plate, it's it's quite tasty. But if if you told me that I could have turkey any other day of the year i would basically say well i don't i don't really care i don't i don't like it that much what's funny i was listening to a podcast from one of our listeners and uh, they were talking about thanksgiving and one of the hosts said she dislikes nine like dislikes 10 different foods and nine of them are served at thanksgiving Oh, so, was, so that probably includes like cranberry sauce and mashed potatoes. Yeah, pretty much. And the gravy. Wow. You're a big gravy fan. <laughs> um, well, here's the thing. Again, I like the drippings. Okay. So the, to be the au jus, Chad, as we say, <laughs> as we say in fine right. French restaurants, yeah. uh, that's perfectly acceptable. What I don't like is the goo that glops forth from the Heinz uh, jars. That's what I do not like. So if somebody takes the drippings, which are just basically yeah, and makes it into fat. homemade gravy, like adds yes, I, that is acceptable. That is acceptable. Yes, it's a sauce, so I wasn't sure how you fall. I know you're not not a big condiment guy. So. Generally, no. But again, there the rules are very nuanced, and we will dedicate an entire podcast one day as to explaining them. But probably not today. Probably not today. So, not to discuss Thanksgiving any further. I wasn't going to start with this, but as we brought it up. We're trying to decide what to have for Christmas. I said we've had turkey already this year. Ham. You have to have ham. That's what I'm planning to have, but that's an Easter thing too. I know. That's okay. So I'm okay with it. We get a free ham from our grocery store, chopped enough, which we do. So I'm figuring ham is going to be the meat du jour, and I'm okay with that. I'm perfectly fine with that. But I didn't know if you had a different take on Christmas. Oh, no. There would be a, there would be a riot at our house if we did not have the ham. Spiral cut? Yes. Okay. I, I like the I like my spiral cut. Uh, honey glazed will work too, uh, but we got to have the ham. Um, and I like ham the- and potatoes al gratin. Oh, you got a potatoes al gratin? Okay. Oh yes, the boys uh, and they they eat like trays of them. Okay, wow. like entire entire cafeteria trays. So, so they, these are fresh ones. I'm assuming not the dehydrated reconstituted. We kind of well sometimes we do both. If we if if Tara has time, she'll do the um, you know from scratch. But sometimes we kind of uh gussy up the the box ones add some things add potatoes and then it's sort of like a starter kit okay that's like hamburger helper except for potatoes so all that being said i came across a conversation this week and you're going to be shocked it's from our friend but it ties in with what we talked about the last time and i want to get your take on it i want to read verbatim what was written here and it says i still wonder how we can have conversations with people who do not share the same basic facts about what is happening in the world. How do we have conversations with men and women who do not believe in systemic racism or think such a view of race is undermining the gospel? 
How do we have conversations with people who believe Trump actually won this election? And how do we have conversations with people who reject science in the midst of a pandemic? <laughs> well, that's our friend's classic question begging yes. about seven different begged questions. Um, all, of course, while earnestly desiring to have legitimate and genuine conversation, while he categorizes people that disagree with him as science deniers. Yeah. OK, yeah. Uh, let me just say that I'm wondering whether he really wants to have a conversation um, so, I mean, first of all, again, what we have to define things. So he says people that don't share common facts, right? Well, mm-hmm. he posits the ideological notion of systemic racism as a fact. On what basis is he claiming that that term is a fact? And what fact does he think it actually is? So I would like to start our conversation with our friend that way, which is, well, first of all, you're using a phrase that is ideologically freighted that doesn't mean anything. It's not a fact. It's not an objective thing. It's a theory. It's a worldview. It's a philosophy that accompanies a larger worldview. And I'm more than happy to discuss that with him. But let's stop pretending that it's a fact or that it's not a contested, a highly contested a statement that everything is systemically racist because people of goodwill can disagree about that apparently although i guess our friend forecloses the possibility that we can have a conversation where one of the people conversing says i don't actually believe in systemic racism the way that you believe in it so that was that's how i would start that conversation and that's a good way to start it and i think what i would say to this person is you talk about a Christian witness, you talk about trying to reach out to people where they are, and everything I read says my what I believe to be true is the fact, because I believe it, and if you don't believe it, then you're wrong, and you just have to come around to my side because that's what I believe. And I, I get, he says he's not a prophet. I would agree with that. You are not a prophet. <laughs> I think that's a well, very accurate statement. Very, I'm very pleased that he's willing to admit that. But I, I guess I get I get concerned that you know he he put up something else this week um, about voter fraud, and he says I can't prove it, but I believe in American institutions. We we do this reverse thing a lot. If Joe Biden was in the situation that President Trump is in right now, as far as the counts and everything else, would he still be sitting here saying? I believe in the institutions and I don't believe in voter fraud. Oh, no, no. He would be apoplectic. And we've talked about this because you can always play this game and he would be posting. And and again, he is representative. Okay, so we use him as somebody that we know um, who is representative of that sort of worldview. And so all of these people, what they would be doing is they would be shrieking to the heavens about disenfranchisement, about demanding the Department of Justice investigate. He would be citing chapter and verse from the now thousands, okay, I'm not, that's not an exaggeration, thousands of affidavits Mm -hmm. which have been filed, sworn statements about things that people have seen going on. Now look, you don't have to credit all of those things, but the idea that somehow he would be saying, I have full faith in our institutions. Joe Biden should just pack up his bags and go back to his basement in Delaware. No, 
That's absurd. And if you don't believe me, consider what the media has done in relation to just say Stacey Abrams. Remember Stacey Abrams, the unsuccessful gubernatorial candidate in Georgia, right? Who claimed, again, literally based on no evidence. If someone wants to call in the show and show me what affidavits were filed, uh, were prepared, claiming that voters in Georgia were disenfranchised in an election she lost by 50,000 votes or whatever, I'm, I'm happy to consider them. But the point is, all that was necessary was the accusation that somehow she lost because of nefarious doings by, of course, the evil white supremacists who don't want her to be governor. And that was taken at face value. Well, again, the people that are gaslighting and saying there's no evidence of fraud in this election, again, many of them are flatly lying. I'm not going to accuse our friend of lying. What I am going to say is that he is he's obviously woefully ignorant of the facts on the ground. Again, I'm not even saying he has to accept that the election was stolen or that there was enough shenanigans that Biden didn't actually win. What I am saying is if you're going to pontificate that there is no fraud, there is fraud rampant, not only in direct evidence from affidavits and videos. And again, not maybe some of it can be explained. Can all of this be explained, Chad? Can all of the statistical anomalies, all of the things that go in the same direction you talked about the other week, the, um, uh, what do they call them? The uh, the counties. They're the, uh, the the word is escaping me. Right, the bellwether, the bellwether areas. Now again, is that an exact metric? Of course not. But nevertheless, I read something like 19 of the 20 bellwether counties, which have predicted the presidential election correctly on the last the last 50 years, mm-hmm. went for Trump, and 42 of the top 50. So again, you say, well, Tony, that's just an anecdotal non-scientific measure. Okay. But when you start adding that in with all of the other just absurd circumstances with these ballot dumps that are 99.8% for Biden and 0.2% for Trump, at some point, someone who has any level of sort of willingness to to look at things without already predetermining the outcome would at least say, this doesn't really smell right to me. Again, without reaching a conclusion, without saying, therefore, we know that Donald Trump should have won. I'm not even saying that. I actually think he did win, but I don't think that can be proven yet um, because fraud is very, very difficult to prove in hindsight. That's the benefit of this mass mail-in balloting. But for him and others to act like there's nothing there, move along, it's all tinfoil hat conspiracy is ridiculous. And anyone who has studied the facts would know that. So two weeks ago, they did a poll, and I haven't seen the updated poll on this. Two-thirds of registered Republicans felt there was some degree of fraud which may have influenced the outcome of the election. One-third of Democrats felt the same way. So it's not just one-sided. Now, it's, it's a third of the people that are registered. That's a lot of people who think this election was not on the up and up. Now, as to your point, can't be proven. I haven't seen any evidence that would make me throw out existing votes to say this. But that's probably partially because the signatures are not matched up with, the, or the envelopes are not matched up with the mail-in ballots. So we really will never know. So I, I equate this to... Uh, you can keep counting the same things over and over again, but if you count incorrectly in the first place, it's always going to be wrong because it's wrong. 
So right. if you take the envelope and you take the ballot out of the envelope and you just keep counting the ballots. So when Georgia certifies it and says, yep, the same number of votes we had at the beginning count are the same. Well, no kidding, because it should be the same. It doesn't show that there wasn't fraud. It just shows that you have the same number you said you did because that's what you had when you put it together. Now, I agree with you, and, and I, I kind of agree with the state of Pennsylvania, the federal judges in the state of Pennsylvania who have thrown out these repeatedly saying, if you had a problem with how this was done, you should have done, you should have come back before the election. I think that's what should have happened. I think there should have been challenges all the way to the Supreme Court before the election because I don't believe any of these things should have been valid. I don't think the counting after we've talked about that the counting after the date of the election should have occurred for anything that didn't come in prior to the, that Tuesday night. But that didn't happen. And I blame the Republicans, Republican National Committee. I, I blame Trump and his team. I don't know if they just didn't think this would happen or they thought for sure that the polls were so wrong that they were going to blow them blow it out of the water. I don't know. Well, the ground I mean, was sufficient. I think they were they were a little bit asleep at the switch, but also remember the context here, Chad. We're in the middle of a pandemic. I know. We're in, and they, look, it wasn't as if these things, particularly these last minute sort of you know these this litigation that the Democrats did to even further weaken uh, the electoral standards going into the election, there would not have been sufficient time to actually litigate this. There, there just wouldn't. True. So, in other words, they understood. The people that were pushing for, oh, we're going to vote for three more days and we're going to relax the standards for even scrutinizing. Oh, we're not going to have to check signatures and we're going to presume, as in Pennsylvania, that even if there's no postmarked, well, we'll just assume that it was postmarked in time. Right. All of this insanity, the litigation process takes a long time, even on an expedited schedule. Right. Where you're going to seek immediate emergency relief from, you know, an appellate court. There's not enough time to address this. So in some respects, I agree with you that they should have maybe been more prepared because this was telegraphed for a year. This is what they were going to do. Yeah. Um, I also want to I want to say one thing, too. When we talk about fraud, OK, because I know the thing is, I've talked to enough friends who are not. Trump supporters. And the minute you talk about fraud, because the only media that they read is the Washington Post, the NPR, they watch CNN, right? Uh, New York Times. They think all of this is just kookville. So mm -hmm. I want to make it clear. I'm not even here talking about when I when I refer, reference these affidavits, we're not even talking about allegations about statistical anomalies. We're not talking about the Dominion voting machines. We're not talking about electronic ballot manipulation, which is some of the stuff that uh, Sidney Powell and others, Lynn Wood, have alleged was going on. I'm going to be completely agnostic about that. What I'm talking about is we have hundreds and hundreds of affidavits from Pennsylvania, from Michigan, from Wisconsin, from Georgia, where people have said things like, for instance, under oath, I was told to backdate ballots that were received late. Mm -hmm. I was told to insert ballots that are not on the registered voter roll into the database so that they could be counted. I was told to ignore the signatures or to not check signatures inconsistent with state law. And I did those things. I was told not to check against the cross-referencing for residency, whether this ballot was actually cast by someone who holds dual residency. They live in California, but they're voting in Nevada. Okay, these are, these are specific factual claims 
about what was going on the day of the election. We're not talking about hypothesis here. We're not talking about an expert who says, I've run a statistical analysis and it's impossible for Joe Biden to have received 500,000 votes while Trump received 2,000. All of that stuff is circumstantially damning. Okay. No, no. I want to make it clear. All I'm talking about, which the media has not reported at reported about at all is person. And by the way, these are not all Republican operatives. These are people that are working. Some of them are poll watchers. Some of them are people that were working the polls and the counting stations in these cities. They are not, are they going to claim that all of these people were somehow enticed to lie about what occurred? So again, if you would have amassed this amount of testimony on a flipped script where Joe Biden had been leading he was comfortably ahead in all the swing states on the night of the election. And then suddenly all of these things happened. And the next morning, all the people that assumed the glorious new Joe Biden administration would be in place found out that he was behind. And then hundreds and hundreds of affidavits started pouring in about poll watchers being blocked and all these other shenanigans. Do you think the media would have dismissed this out of hand as a nothing burger? That's a rhetorical question. We know they would have their heads would have exploded. Yeah, uh, you're on par. You're uncertain with everything. So I guess. Looking ahead, in four years, there's going to be another presidential election. Regardless of who the Democrats put up, regardless of who the Republicans put up, there's going to be none in four, four more years. If we assume that the population thinks that there were shenanigans, whether they were in favor of them or against them, based on how their candidate fell out on that, do have we lost enough trust in the system the institutions that our friend says he believes in suddenly he believes in the electoral college again. I don't know why. Uh, is there enough? Is there so much trust lost that people say, hmm, I'm not sure what to do using Georgia on January 5th as an example, have enough Republicans in Georgia said, I think the system's rigged. It doesn't matter what I do. I'm not going to go out, which I think is a dumb idea. I, I think if you're yeah. in Georgia, you need to go vote. Even if you think it's rigged against you, you still need to go vote because there's no there's not enough proof right now to say it is. But why would you give the Democrats an opportunity to to take those two seats simply because you don't show up? So do we have enough trust in four years? Because I don't think Biden's going to heal the country, regardless of what. I'm oh, you don't. Oh, I don't, I don't know that he, Trump he of little faith, Chad. I don't think Trump divided what was already divided because I think Obama did a great job of dividing the country. And I think. Trump just showed up on the scene at the division. I, I don't think Trump or Biden's going to do anything better. I don't or Harris if she's the president in four years. So where do we stand as far as trust in the electoral system? Is it a is it an anomaly? I mean, we've well, had issues. I can't. Asked, I mean, but- I can't speak for other people. I will say this, and I've made this point before. As long as there is mass mail in balloting, I have zero trust in the election. None. Okay. Now people may say, Tony, that's incredibly cynical. And now you're, oh, you're, it's disgraceful. You're anticipatorily undermining the democratic process. No mail-in balloting. And again, let's be clear on our terms. I'm not talking about designated absentee ballots that are requested Mm -hmm. by individuals who must verify who they are. I'm talking about indiscriminately sending out millions of ballots 
on an unvetted, unpurged voter roll to people that are dead, to people that have moved, to people that no longer vote in that state, et cetera, et cetera. That process is in itself the fraud. It is so vulnerable to abuse that any country that is interested in ballot integrity that employs that type of voting scheme, they're lying because it in and of itself prevents any trust in the outcome of an election. And you know what? You don't even have to take my word for this. You can go back and do sort of a time capsule review of, I don't know, luminaries like hmm, Joe Biden and, <laughs> oh, Barack Obama and people like Jimmy Carter, who was part of a federal blue ribbon panel that investigated this. And you know what all those people said until, of course, it was to their benefit not to say this is that mail in balloting is inherently untrustworthy and susceptible to fraud. Everyone knows this. Unfortunately, one of the parties in this country views that as a feature and not a bug. <laughs> so if you're asking me, has trust been undermined? Absolutely. And if they don't remove mail-in balloting, and by the way, why would anyone think that they would? How would we do that? We're already down that road. They're going to try to expand it. I have no faith at all in the outcome of any federal election using that system. I don't disagree with you, and I think that's part of the problem, and I think there's a lot of people in this country. I won't say it's everybody who voted for Donald Trump, but I'll bet it's a large proportion of the people who voted for Donald Trump, and even apparently some of the people who voted for Joe Biden feel like there's an issue with the voting process. And I, I am concerned that in four years, this dream team of Biden-Harris, and I use that in quotes, is, is not going to make things better. They're only going to make things worse. And re the return to normalcy that they claim they're trying to do is a return to the Barack Obama era of divide and conquer, phone and pen, uh, you know, separating everybody to pit against each other. So I don't, I don't see anything positive coming out of this. And I'm not saying if Trump had won, it would have united either. I don't think that's a uniting. Oh, are you kidding? It's just been more of the same there. I mean, look, Trump is not a unifying person. No. Trump pours gas on the fire. But I also think that people like our friend who claim that Donald Trump is the, was the originator and catalyst for this division. Well, they, they either have uh, were they in suspended animation for <laughs> the Obama years? Did yeah. they have they paid any attention to what the left has done and said. So the idea that Donald Trump, again, the unified field theory is that everything is caused by Donald Trump is nonsense. Donald Trump is not a rec is someone who is interested in reconciling. That's part of his character. I don't, I don't like that. I would say this. Do you really think that if Donald Trump did genuinely try, okay, stop tweeting, started to actually honestly reach across the aisle, do you think that would have been met with Oh, thank you, Donald. You've done what we've asked for. No, it would have been the ongoing, continuing demonization. You're a Russian spy. All of it. They, again, let's remind people, this was before, before Hitler actually was sworn in. Day one after the 2016 election, the Washington Post was calling for his impeachment. Day one. Day one. Day after his election, they were calling for impeachment. No, that's what I mean. I'm, I'm not yeah. talking about his inauguration. I'm talking about whatever, November 4, November 5, whatever it was. He needs to be impeached and we need to invoke the 25th Amendment. And, and that was incessant and nonstop 24-7 for the last 
four years. And now we have the same people saying, oh, we all need to, we need to rally around Joe Biden. We need to unify. We need to heal. Even our friend saying things like, we're going to have to repair this. And my question to our friend would be, and those like him, are you going to be the first ones to repent of what you've done here? Because all I hear is one side is to blame. That would be the MAGA hat wearing mouth breathers who support Donald Trump as if, again, the people that are claiming that everyone needs to shut up and move on about fraud because it's all a bunch of conspiracists are the same ones that watched Rachel Maddow and were hysterically promoting Every absurd Russians in the cupboard fantasy that has been completely refuted for four years. And now suddenly they're back to the reality based community. Why would anyone think that the election like stop it? No one's going to listen to you. You have zero credibility. But uh, Nancy Pelosi was asked uh, yesterday morning about the relief bill, the relief package that she's been holding out for two and a half trillion dollars since August. And her response was now that Donald Trump's lost the election, she's willing to make a deal for less money. So it was completely about politics, not the people. I'm so I, astonished to hear I that. Chad. It's so disappointing. There's a, there's a Twitter um, video going around. There's a small business, small restaurant in, in Southern California. The lady has been trying to get her outside uh, seating up and she's been told it's been unsafe and um mayor garcetti and the governor have closed down any outside seating and across the street 50 feet from where her tables are outside under a tarp or under a tent they put up a movie uh back lot for food vending 50 feet from her doing the exact same thing that's allowed hers is not right i know that's shocking well, that, that of course that brings us back to one of the other Uh, conversations that we're supposed to try to have that our friend alluded to, which is the people that believe in science. What, what science, what science I would ask someone. (laughs) So that dichotomy right there, what is the science exactly that supports that disparate treatment? Can anyone explain that? No, of course not. No, it's completely arbitrary. It has nothing to do with science. And in fact, You know, it's interesting. The people that want to talk about science, what I would ask them is, and why is it that the media and big tech continue to intentionally suppress science? Mm -hmm. What am I talking about? Well, we've referenced this. There's a huge study out, Danish study, which is an actual randomized trial of 4,000 people that was published several weeks ago. And what, what were they looking at? They were studying the efficacy of masks. This is not modeling. This is not theoretical, which again, all of that is what they mean by science, right? We, we have more doom and gloom projections that you must abide by. No, this is an actual clinical study, randomized trial, essentially the best you can do. What were their conclusions? Oh, oh, very, very inconvenient. Uh, The conclusions, and by the way, this doesn't mean that I'm against wearing masks. What What I'm against is suppressing information because you're wedded to a preconceived narrative. That is the opposite of science. And so what have people done with this study? Well, 
They've tried to debunk it. By the way, that's fair. Criticize the study if you have valid criticisms. But no, they've actually simply prevented it from being shared. Johns Hopkins recently came out with their own peer-reviewed study that indicated essentially that there's been no increase in overall death toll from COVID, meaning that the number of deaths that we typically see in a typical year are really not any larger, which of course you would expect given the fact that this is a pandemic. Well, that thing, they voluntarily removed that from their site. Why? Because all the wrong people were pointing it out. We can't have that. We can't have the heretics relying on our study to make points that are contrary to the gospels. The COVID gospels have spoken. So these people aren't doing science. They're doing propaganda. They're doing confirmation bias. They're doing cherry pick information that we like and deep six and memory hole the information that we don't. Gee, it sounds like they're not actually into science at all. No, they aren't. And I, I thought it was, we can move on from this, but uh, Joe Biden tripped over one of his dogs, broke his foot, and they had a pet psychic from England speak to his dogs. So this crazy woman in England who's never met his dogs is now channeling her, his dogs, telling them what they think. And we're supposed to believe it's the party of science because they put that on the Today Show. Well, boy, yeah, and here's that the thing. And I, I don't really understand why everyone is so fascinated with this Joe Biden story. However, did you actually read what their their supposed explanation for what happened is? Did you read what it is? Something about getting out of the shower? Yes. The- so Biden says... And, and please get the brain bleach ready so that he's coming out of the shower naked. Ooh. And he decides he's going to pull the tail of his dog and somehow then slips or trips or whatever. But I'm thinking to myself, Chad, have you, have you owned a dog? Yeah. Okay. I own a dog. Do you pull your dog's tail? No, they Why? don't like that. You don't, whole dog's tails like the whole thing is bizarre here comes naked joe shambling out of the shower here marmaduke let me pull your tail oh <laughs> what yeah it's a, that's that's, a, that's completely bonkers well wasn't harry reed the uh the treadmill accident yeah harry was attacked by the uh, chuck norris home gym or whatever happened to him <laughs> i i feel like Somebody said this, there was a lot of specific details around that accident that yes, you go as a parent going, I think you're lying to me. It just doesn't make sense. It's too specific. And I, don't, I don't really care how Joe Biden broke his foot. He's an, he's an elderly person, yeah. you know, I, whatever. If he, you know, if he kicked his television, uh, fell down in the driveway, it doesn't really matter. But I was getting out of the shower and I was chasing Fido to pull his tail. What? Yeah, that's, that's weird. I don't, I don't know. By the way, if that was Trump's story, oh yeah, Peter would be demanding that he be guillotined. Yes, right. Yes. It's animal abuse. It's it's domestic pet abuse. You you laugh. You I know, know that's right. exactly. There would be headlines totally in the right. New York Times about that. Totally right. Totally right. So where do we go from here? Because on on a week from Monday, we're going to have the electoral college is going to meet and they're going to confirm Joe Biden as the president. We're going to have inauguration on January twentieth. What's what's coming and what can we, you know, let's assume the Georgia vote for Senate, both Republicans get in. I think we, then we've got a stalemate in the, in the Congress, which is great. Wait, wait. When you say both, you mean 
You're, well, let's just assume that one okay. of them wins. Okay. Only one, either Leffler or Purdue. By the way, I'm not sure that's a safe assumption. I don't think it is um, I actually think that there's a better than 50% chance that they're both going to lose with a little assist from Correct. <laughs> Stacey Abrams and her crew down there. But nevertheless, but okay, so I'll go with you and say, let's assume that Mitch is still riding herd in the Senate by one vote. Right. So Mitch or actually would be two votes. It would be, let's assume it's a 51-49 Senate. Yeah. So the Republicans have the majority, however slim that might be. Uh, Nancy is still the Speaker of the House, but with a much slimmer majority than she had prior to this. Uh, Biden, they, they just put him in his wheelchair and move him out to the Oval Office. Uh, Kamala spends a lot of time in the executive office next door just running the government. What can we expect? I just saw today that, or yesterday that federal judge restored DACA. Because he said that the gentleman running Homeland Security was not legally appointed. Therefore, he can't make a ruling to get rid of this. I'm still questioning, and I think a lot of people are questioning, it was an executive order, write an executive order to end it. Now, it's going to come right back as soon as Biden gets in. But why, are we, why have we spent the last four years playing around this executive order? Write another executive order and say it's ended, done, gone. You what mean problem? Biden write an executive order oh, that it, Trump should have written an executive order four years ago saying DACA's done. That's right. Well, but he tried to do that. And they said you're not allowed to do that, even though he actually has the authority to do that. And what Barack Obama, because remember, and, and this is so again, we're we're living in sort of opposite world. There is a federal statute which relates to this. The president, Barack Obama at the time, wanted Congress to to essentially enact DACA. And that's how we do things in our system. Congress, they're the ones that pass legislation. They're the ones that expand or constrict immigration, subject to review by the courts. But essentially, that's their role. And what did Barack Obama say repeatedly on the record until he didn't believe this? I'm not a king. I'm incapable of overruling Congress because, as you know, I'm a constitutional scholar and these issues are things that I ponder deep into the night. And then suddenly he decided, hey, you know what? If Congress won't act, I will. That's his mantra, right? That doesn't sound too constitutional to me, but what do I know? So he, his executive order is completely invalid. It is beyond the scope of his authority as the executive. And so the reason I'm making this point is this isn't about dueling executive orders. The original executive order, which superseded Barack Obama's, his constitutional authority, which overrode Congress, was a nullity from its inception. And what Donald Trump did in issuing an executive order revoking that prior bogus order was entirely appropriate. So I want people to understand all executive orders are not created equal, okay? It's not just, oh, ping pong match, your executive order. No, the original one, which took the decision out of the hands of Congress, that was illegitimate. That was executive unbound. That's the things that Paul Krugman screams about when he has the night sweats about the tyrant chief executive that only Donald Trump is a concern, apparently. <laughs> so, yes, you're correct. Joe Biden would have gone ahead and with a stroke of his pen re-implemented what Barack Obama had illegitimately done. And so it's incredibly perverse that a federal judge looking at this question from a legal standpoint and saying literally, 
oh, we think it's okay what Barack Obama did. We're not going to let the chief executive rescind that, which he clearly, to your point, has the power to do because all it is is a prior executive order. Mm -hmm. It's amazing. And this is, again, one of the problems with the judiciary and Judge Sullivan being the current perfect (laughs) representation of this. They're completely rogue as well. They're just they're just implementing whatever they think their policy should be because they're part of the resistance, many of them, certainly the ones that were uh, nominated by Barack Obama. They know why they're on the bench. They're they're just more legislators in robes. So he put that in, I don't remember what year DACA went in. That 2014? Like that? Something like that, yes. So maybe 15, I don't I don't remember. So if if the Democrats and the progressives can find a federal judge or at least file it in a a circuit court where a federal judge will rule in their favor, why couldn't somebody on the other side have found a a circuit court that would rule in favor of ending DACA before it even got started? Why Why are we here five, six, seven years later still talking about this when it was an unlawful overreach of power when it was put into place, what what am I missing? Why did that not happen? Yeah, that that's a good question. Um, and I I would have to go back and look to see, sort of how these different legal challenges percolated through the courts in terms of how the Trump administration handled that. Because uh, I actually don't, off the top of my head, remember how how that played out. I, I'll I'll say this. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of federal judges who still view themselves as judges and right. not legislators, right. not philosopher kings and queens. But there are many judges who basically defaulted. Their default orientation was if Donald Trump did it, it's bad. And, I, and we're just not, I'm not going to allow it because reasons. Yeah. And that's the, that's the sad part. You brought up some, some judge things um, and you brought up Judge Sullivan. I've been reading a lot about uh, Flynn getting his pardon and all you hear is presidential overreach shouldn't be able to give that pardon because it's, he's, he can't, he shouldn't be able to pardon his cronies who, uh, work in <laughs> crime with him. Like, his cronies. Yeah. Should we, should we, should we take a little trip down memory lane? I don't know. Bill Clinton's they Mark rich mean anything. I mean, <laughs> again, the hypocrisy of these people and, and you know what else it is. And we've talked about this as it relates to Hillary. It's the belief that everyone else is just so stupid, yeah. meaning, oh, they're, they're not going to remember that stuff. Oh, oh, yeah, right. Bill Clinton. I don't know how many people, how many scuzzy actors he parted on his way out the door. And we can look at some of the people that Obama pardoned. OK, yeah. but we're well, the rubes, they don't remember any of that. So today we'll roll out of bed and write an editorial about how horrible it is that Trump is employing the pardon power for his cronies. Okay, Um, here's amazing thing, Chad. I don't know if you saw this. This, again, goes exactly to the point we're making about this sort of uh, judicial rogue nation. There are now apparently judges within the D.C. circuit who are trying to figure out a way to claim that Trump's pardon isn't actually a full pardon of Flynn. They still want this guy. They're going to get this guy burned at the stake one way or another. It's incredible. Um, and and I, I will say this, as someone who's a lawyer, who's a trial lawyer, I'm not a criminal lawyer, but 
the fact that Sullivan was able to get away with basically refusing in the face of case law that says when, when the prosecution comes to the court and says, we no longer feel that we can make a case, we are dismissing the charges. The only thing for the judge to do in a ministerial capacity is rubber stamp that decision. It doesn't matter whether the judge thinks it's foolish. It doesn't matter whether the judge thinks it's unjustified. The judge is not the prosecution. The judge is the judge. And when both parties before the court agree, there is no dispute to be adjudicated. (laughs) The judge cannot decide, well, I think there is. And you know what I'm going to do, as Judge Sullivan did? I'm not going to allow you to dismiss this, and I'm going to hire my buddy who just wrote an angry editorial demonizing Flynn literally three days before. I'm going to bring him in as some sort of amicus advisor, and he's going to help the court figure out whether there are other charges that can be brought because I'm now acting as the judge and the new prosecutor because the old prosecutor is clearly not doing their job. And then when he eventually gets appealed for that grotesque abuse, the case is sent back to him and the court says, Remember, they went up on it, what's called a writ of mandamus. And so for the non-lawyers, all that means is it's basically something that says a public official has to do their their duty. They have a public fiduciary obligation to do what is required of them under the law. That's basically what it means. So the appellate court, the panel, the three-judge panel, first says, you know what, we're granting the writ. We're telling Sullivan you need to dismiss this because guess what? You have no discretion. Of course, what happens is the court on bonk. It's another fancy word. That means the entire DC circuit sits. Guess what? What's the partisan breakdown? Oh yeah. It's a whole bunch of more Harry Reid Obama appointments. And they say, no, 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 no. We're not going to grant that. We're going to send it back to judge Sullivan <laughs> and essentially wait for him to do the right thing. What does Sullivan do? It's on Nothing. Sits on it and sits on it and sits on it. And you know why? He's no dummy. He's running out the clock. He knows if Biden wins and eventually there's a new AG and a new DOJ, those charges are not going away. They'll probably be ratcheted up. And so what does he do? He forces Trump to issue a pardon rather than giving Flynn what he's entitled to, which is a dismissal and exoneration. I'm sorry. It's just the that behavior is so incredibly disgraceful. It's just, it's unfathomable to me. And yet there's no consequences for that. Nothing. Uh, It's when people talk about sort of two tier justice and the corruption Mm -hmm. of our justice system, this is a perfect example. If, if I'm a colleague of that judge, what I'm saying is that's outrageous. Yes. It doesn't matter. It shouldn't matter what your partisan viewpoint is. Shouldn't matter whether you love Donald Trump or loathe Donald Trump. A judge who acts in that fashion outside the scope of his or her authority, any American should look at that and say, we can't have that. That that can't go on. But yet there's half the country that's cheering for that because guess what? They don't like Flynn and they don't like Trump. And so ends justify the means. Yeah. Uh- there, there should be a an impeachment 
hearing for Judge Sullivan, but we know that's never going to happen in the House, so we don't have to worry about that ever getting processed. I, I want to move on to something I just read this morning. Um, COVID-19 vaccine, some sort, is probably going to get approved by the FDA in emergency uh, approval. Whether you are happy about that, not real happy about that, not really sure about that, something's going to get approved and it's going to be started to give it out and they're going to, they're stratifying who gets what, when, uh, but the question came up, could you be forced to get the vaccine? Could you be forced now? USA today says not by the government, but by your employer, by your school, by your something where Places you go, if you want to go there, you're going to have to have the vaccine. Right. Well, again, it's just how you skin the cat. Correct. Of course, nobody's going to go door to door with the uh, vaccine SWAT team and say, step forward, receive your vaccine. What they will do. And I think there is I think there's there's a fairly good chance that along the line, something like this happens because, again, the central planners They know best. Everyone must be vaccinated. There will be essentially strings attached to this. Oh, you don't have to get your vaccine. Oh, but you know what? Oh, so sorry. If you don't have one, well, you can't really work at this public job anymore. You can't be a teacher. You can't come to school. You can't work in a federal building. Sorry. Mm -hmm. Um, So as I said, it's not going to be direct forcible coercion. It's going to be if you don't do it, well, there's going to be things in your life that are no longer available to you. Most specifically the job that you used to have or the school that you used to teach at, right? Whatever. Um, that, that's how it will be implemented. Well, so. And take this now again, words. I'm not saying that's constitutional. And I suspect that if that was attempted because it's de facto coercion that the Supreme court, the currently constituted Supreme court where now John Roberts has been rendered somewhat irrelevant. Um, I think they would smack that down. But if you're asking me, do I think they're going to attempt something like that within the next four years? Absolutely. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not saying this is what I I believe, but I've I've seen online from different people uh, equating this down to the end times. This is the mark of the beast. With did you get the vaccine? Yeah. Um, no comment. I, I, I you and I have talked about this before. I know. I I don't find uh I I just don't find the crystal ball revelation, you know, the 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 eschatological predictions about this stuff. I you know what? I don't know when the end times are going to be, Chad. I I don't. It could be tomorrow. It could be in 10,000 years. I for me personally, even though I know this stuff is interesting to many people, uh I just don't really spend a lot of time worrying about it or thinking about it because there have been so many people who have said so many times, this is the event. Look right. what's happening in 1967. This is the event. We don't know. We don't know. And to me there, it requires a certain level of let's just, let's be blunt arrogance to be proclaiming. I have ferreted out the signs. This yeah. is the time. And by the way, many of the people that make these proclamations have already made them before repeatedly and yeah. been wrong. And yet somehow there's no recognition that maybe I should be quiet now. 
I got it wrong the last seven times. So I'm just going to stop talking about this. And whenever, whenever Christ decides to return, that's when I will be overjoyed. But until then, I'm really not going to bother speculating about this. But you know what? There's a lot of people that think in those terms, and I'm not, I'm not minimizing uh, prophecy. Okay, I still think that that gift exists in the world. Um, I just, for me, it's pointless to speculate about that stuff. That's fair. I just wanted to bring it up because it was part of that conversation. Uh, to, to end here tonight. Wait, no, hold on. I have a topic. Oh, go I ahead. Have a very quick topic. Okay. Sarah Fuller. <laughs> I was kind of in the realm of that, but okay. What do you want to talk about, Sarah? So, okay. So here's the thing. So this is now. I'm going to have to. Um, actually, I'm not going to really be very careful about what I say about this, but nevertheless. So for people that don't know, show what. Be very careful. Your sister listens to the show. Oh, absolutely. Oh, okay. I, I guarantee you. I guarantee you that any of my sisters, all of whom who were athletes who listen to this will agree with me. So here's what I'm going to say. Sarah Fuller, for those that don't know, is a very accomplished woman's soccer player for the University of Vanderbilt. She is the goalkeeper on that team. I believe her team won the SEC championship. So this is a highly accomplished athlete, mm -hmm. deserves Every amount of credit for being a superb goalie for a championship team at a division one level. That's pretty rarefied. She's a stud. Okay. At soccer. Yes. Now the Vanderbilt football team, which competes in the sec and the cellar, uh, I believe, uh, their coach was just fired and they are winless. Correct. And for some reason, I don't know whether it was COVID related or injuries, but they basically didn't have any kickers left to run out onto the field. And so they recruited internally Sarah Fuller, who's a goalie who, who kicks the ball. And she's a powerful woman. If you've ever seen a picture of her, I mean, she's a sizable woman. Mm -hmm. And so they decided we're going to use Sarah Fuller to be uh, someone who we're going to like to kick off. Right. And she actually went out in, last week uh, in a college football game, Division One. I. I believe it makes her maybe the third woman who has ever taken the field in a division one college football game. And I forget the names of the, the prior two. They were also kickers. And so she kicked off. Uh, I don't know whether it was the opening kickoff. I didn't watch the game. Second half and it was a squib kick. Well, okay. So this is the interesting thing. So this is what I want to discuss. Yeah. Here's it's my the, attitude. The player about of the week for special teams. Right. So, on the one hand, you have all these people that are saying, listen, this is a tremendous groundbreaking accomplishment uh, for women, you know, giant leap for womankind. Okay. Um, look, I think it's great. I, I'd be the first person to say, if you can find a woman who can compete with men at a division one level and win that job, whatever the position is on merit, I don't care if there's 10 women on the team. I don't care if the whole starting 11 are all women running around, running back, offensive tackle, tight end, whatever. Unfortunately, there are certain realities about sports at that level, which is that men are bigger, stronger, faster, better than women. That doesn't mean that women aren't equally talented athletes in their own right. What it means is when it comes to that sport at that level, because people are like, well, Sarah Fuller could kick your butt. Uh, Probably so, but 
I'm not claiming that I can run out onto a football field as a division one player and not get folded, spindled and mutilated. <laughs> she, she kicks the ball. It's a horrifically bad kick. And I don't want to hear any of this revisionist nonsense about, Oh, they interviewed Ron Rivera for some reason, who is the coach of um, the, the Washington football team. <laughs> uh, let's just call them what they are. The Redskins, the yeah. Washington Redskins. And Rivera says he called it. It was a perfect. What was the term he used? Like it I was a perfect mortar kick. Mortar kick. Okay. okay. Listen, listen, let's all stop pretending at the stage of the game. It was, there was no reason to do a squib kick or a pooch kick or a mortar kick or whatever you're going to call it. She kicked it 30 yards and it was going out of bounds. It was a terrible kick. Now, yeah. I'm not piling on Sarah Fuller. Lots of men have made terrible kicks. The point is, if we are going to honor and respect women, if we're going to claim this is a person who is now playing Division One football, shouldn't we be able to fairly and honestly evaluate her performance as a football player? Because remember, we don't want any special exemptions, right? That's condescending. That's patronizing. So I'm going to evaluate Sarah Fuller as the person who kicked off for Vanderbilt in a division one football game. And her kick was abysmal. Mm -hmm. And so this pretend world we have to live in where everyone has to celebrate that. And you know what? I even said this to a friend of mine. I think she can probably kick a lot better than that. If she's a division one goalie, she can kick a soccer ball 70 yards. No question on a six kick. So she was probably really nervous and probably didn't do her best. And that's fair. And I more than happy to have her try it again. But this mass like emperor has no clothes or like what is going on? Why are we not allowed to say that was a disastrous kick. Wasn't good, and it needs to improve. And if that person would continue to be the kicker, um, well, they can't do their job. Now, you tell me what's wrong with anything that I just said. Nothing you said is wrong. It was a wasn't a great kick. And, and to be fair, I would say there's 127 uh, FBS teams that play football. She might make it on a team in the lower portion of that 127, maybe, but there's nobody, nobody's getting a division one scholarship with that kicking ability to any college in the country that, that kicks. And if she's good enough, if she's good enough to make any of any one of those 124 teams, I'm all for it. Sure. I mean, I, so I don't understand again, we've come to a place in this culture. This reminds me, do you remember when uh, John McEnroe, uh, yeah. gave an interview where he talked about Serena Williams. And in the interview, he said, Serena Williams is the greatest female tennis player of all time. Mm -hmm. The interviewer, who I think was from NPR, of course, uh, <laughs> that wasn't sufficient. And so the interviewer says, well, why? Why are you limiting it to, to women tennis players? And McEnroe sensibly says, because um, the men are a lot better. And Serena, I forget what number he said, like might not even be like she's top 300. And between you and me, Chad, I don't think Serena's top 300 on the men's tennis tour. I don't think she could beat the top division one 
men's college tennis players who are not on the tour. And again, why are we not allowed to say this? Because I'm not demeaning Serena Williams. I think Serena Williams is probably the second best female tennis player. I think Steffi Graf was better. But nevertheless, she's one of the greatest athletes in history for her sport, undoubtedly. Why do we have to pretend? Oh, 300? Yeah. Yeah. Have you watched men play tennis at that level and women play tennis at that level? Men serve 130 miles an hour. Serena Williams, who's the best women's server in history, when she really cranks it up, maybe hits 105 miles an hour, something like that. Men hit their forehands sometimes close to 100 miles an hour. Serena hits hers like 80. I mean, it just doesn't stop. Physically, there is no comparison, but we're not allowed to say that. Well, everything you're saying is 100% correct. And, and this isn't to mean any female athlete who if we've talked about this many times in the past could kick my butt in their respective sport and probably other sports as well that I could not compete on the same level. I am not a division one athlete, never was, didn't, didn't aspire to be. If you're a division one athlete, you're far and away elite. I don't care what the sport is, but anytime I hear the qualification of something you know, when you say, uh, you know, that that uh, tastes like meat, the, the Beyond Burger tastes like meat. Well, you know what tastes like meat? Meat. You know, what what competes on a, if I have to qualify it with a, a, an adjective to describe it, it's not the same. That's why I have to put the adjective in front of it. If I just said, who's the best kicker in the world? And it was men and women mixed together and you they were ranked equally and there wasn't all men and then some women, then that that's fair. The same with golf, the same with about tennis. The reality is there is differences. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I really think it's fine to have differences. I re- I'd be love to hear what your sisters have to say uh, about that topic, because I think it's important to understand. I celebrate the differences that we have between each other. And I get tired of being told we're all the same, except when we're not. When it, it right, typically it matters to be the same, except when, you know, it's, what is so special about Kamala Harris as the vice president elect? Is she somehow different in the role because she's a woman or because she's a minority woman? What changes? Maybe she has different viewpoints, but that's called diversity. It's not because of her skin color. Why is that celebrated as something special? You know, I, I, I remember when I was. Well, why you know, is it celebrated as look? I don't have a problem with people saying, hey, this is the first woman to ever do this particular thing. Okay, I I understand that. But it's the only thing that matters to these people. And this is interesting. On the Sarah Fuller thing, there was an interview because I think Vanderbilt, did they play Georgia today? They did not. It was canceled because of players. So they were going to play Georgia. And the coach of Georgia is Kirby Smart. Mm -hmm. And somebody asked Kirby Smart, whether on a kickoff in anticipation of this game and assuming that Sarah Fuller was going to be out there, whether he would instruct his team to sort of, you know, don't target the kicker, take it easy. And, and Kirby smart, of course, you know, he's, he knows like there's no correct answer to this. And so he gave some, I forget exactly what he said, but my response is why is that question being asked now? Remember 
worse, we've been told, <laughs> we have been told that Sarah Fuller, because this is a tremendous accomplishment, is a Division One college football player, just like every other man on that field. Why is a reporter, therefore, asking Kirby Smart whether his players are going to take it easy on a Division I college football player. Now, I'm very perplexed by this because the only thing that that question could mean is we recognize there is a difference with this one college football player, and so there has to be special rules for that person when they're on the field. What that tells me is they're not a division one college football player, because if you have to implement those different standards, they shouldn't be out on the field. Do you so agree you, with that? I completely agree with that. So <clears throat> if you, if you look back into the nineties, uh, remember Jim Abbott? Yes. Pitcher. Uh, for those Yankees, who don't know, Yankees only had eight. one, basically, I, I think it was, do you have a birth defect? So he, he had one arm and it was actually his, catching arm because he would pitch with the other arm uh but he would he would put the had this strange mechanism where we get the glove on his hand after he pitched and so if you know if the ball gets shot back at him he can catch it he was a major league pitcher not because he had one arm because he had the ability to throw with his other arm to the level of being a major league pitcher so he was unique because I can't think of another position where you could have done that. You couldn't have played any other position on the field and done that. And you couldn't have played in the national league because you would have had to hit. But the reality was he was good at the role, not because he had one arm, but he was singled out because he had one. Yeah. Arm. And can you imagine, can you imagine someone, let's say uh, asking Tony LaRussa, then the manager of the Oakland athletics, one of the teams uh, in, you know, in the, in the American league, before a game featuring Jim Abbott. Hey, Tony, listen, have you, um, you know, you see that guy out there. It's amazing. He's got one arm. Yeah. Have you told your uh, hitters to kind of, you know, take it easy? Like no smoking any doubles into the gap on this poor guy, right? right. No. Why? Because that'd be incredibly insulting. The man is out there because he deserves to be out there because he's an incredible story of perseverance and talent. And he's good enough to be a major league pitcher. And you know what? It would be the same thing if Sarah Fuller had a hundred mile an hour fastball and she was the fourth starter in the Yankees rotation. And no one should be asking the hitters. Well, you're going to, you know, got Sarah out there today. You're going to take it easy. That's, it, again, the whole premise of that question demonstrates what a farce this is, and it should be insulting to Sarah Fuller, who worked her butt off to actually get that opportunity. And you know what? If I'm Sarah Fuller, what I would hope is people would have enough respect for me as a football player to say that was a really bad kick mm -hmm. and you need to do better. Because yeah. that's your role on this team, just like any other person in a film room. When a coach says you missed that block, you dropped that pass, you committed pass interference, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But apparently, again, we can only do that in certain ways. They're equal, but then they're not equal. Right. It, it's that's my problem with this is that it's all manufactured, and it's to the detriment of that woman because she's become this sort of mascot for a movement rather than be treated with the kind of respect that 
is deserving of anyone who's out there competing at that level. Yeah. I, you bring up all those points, and I think they're looking for a story. They got a story. Her kick at best was an average high school kickoff level. It wasn't, and maybe it was nerves. Maybe it was something else. Nobody would, would have thought twice about that. They would have said, oh, that was a really bad kick, forgetting the gender of the person kicking the ball. It's a story, but it's not a good story. That was the only kick she had in the game because Vanderbilt got beat 41 nothing. never attempted a field goal, and that was the kickoff for the second half. That was it. It was the only time. She didn't get hit. She didn't get nothing. So it wasn't a great kick. The reason we brought that you brought that up, and I, I wanted to talk about this, the Knight Commission, which is a non-binding commission, uh, endorses that Division One football be separated from the NCAA, separate in, in and of itself, completely separate from all the other NCAA sports at any level. What are your thoughts on that? Does that seem reasonable? Does that even seem? How would that work? I I mean I don't know. This is something that I haven't really even been following. So they want to make sort of what Division One football kind of like its own. Uh, minor league sport, basically. I, basically, they're saying the other sports, they look like a duck, they act like a duck, they quack like a duck, they're a duck. Whereas Division One football, what they call it FBS. but for, Why is Division One basketball not also? Well, that might be another direction, but because you've got, that's not currently on there because there's so much money involved in Division One football. And there's a lot in basketball, but it's it still pales in comparison. Yeah, football's king. They're saying that, that football is a pterodactyl amongst ducks. It is a unique beast that is totally different than anything else at any other sport or any other level as far as the NCAA is concerned, and it should have its own separate organization that's not the NCAA. I don't know how that would work. Well, here's the thing. Are they, are they then saying that these programs, if I understand this proposal, would no longer be part of each college's athletic department? They aren't saying that. They aren't but saying how that. are they then not under the auspices, the governance of the NCAA? Because if you're part of the athletic department, then the NCAA has jurisdiction. And of course, you know where I'm going with this is uh-huh. you strip out football. You have no other. The the football team funds yeah. everything else in existence. That's so you separate football out and that revenue stream, everything else dies. So I don't know if they separate it out so much as it's got a separate governance completely from everything else out there. So it doesn't adhere to the same rules where they could say, if we want to pay athletes, we just pay the football players. We don't right. pay. So that's the point. That's the point is that this is all derived from the idea that they want to be able to pay the players. Probably. Probably. But or, again, the minute, the minute you go down that road, all of the NCAA basketball players are going to be saying, yo, what about us? And, and they're they able to get across. Division one may be able to get across with that if this would go. It's a test, obviously. And, it, and there's again, the Knight Commission is non-binding. Nobody has to do it. It's just their recommendation and goes from there. I just thought it was interesting because I well, know that that's something. I've always said, you know, you have this tension between, look, the amount of revenue that these athletes generate for these universities is obscene. Mm-hmm. And, of course, what most of the people point out who are in favor of paying athletes is, You've got all of these people that are making money on the backs of these players. And let's, again, let's sort of focus in many of whom are Mm African-American. So the optics of this, since everything has to be racialized, is 
you have many, many young African-Americans who are generally at the top of these sports, not exclusively, certainly in basketball and predominantly in the skill positions at football, the marquee positions. They're making all of this money. Many of them come from impoverished backgrounds, not all. Many do inner cities. And so you're depriving them of earning a living. And meanwhile, they're making everyone else rich off of their effort and their talent. Okay. And I get that. My response has always been, and you've, I think you've even alluded to this, Chad, you know, this idea that they're not being paid. Well, wait a minute. Many of them are getting what amounts to a $250,000 education. Now, of course, we can talk about what level of education they're receiving. At some institutions, there's more of that going on than others. But nevertheless, that's a quarter million dollar value in real money that they're getting that other students don't get. But what I've always said is, if you want to make it just into a uh, an assembly line for a professional sport, then let's stop pretending and let's just say I'm going to school for football, right? I'm not. Well, I'm not going to classes. I'm attending the University of Alabama to get to basically play football for four years. That's what I'm doing. We'll dispense with the idea that I'm a student athlete, and you know what? And then we can set up some payment some remuneration related to that because you're not going to walk out of there with a degree. You right. just are there to play for Nick Saban and to use that platform to launch yourself, hopefully to a multi-million dollar career. And as long as we're all okay with that, so that when you leave, you don't have a degree. Right. What you did is you played football for four years and you were compensated in some fashion for that. Okay. Well, is it, is it feasible Going forward in this country, we have minor league baseball. Okay. You can be 18, drafted by a minor league team, by, by a major league team, go through their farm system to possibly get to the majors at some point. You have foregone going to college because you're in the minors. If you wanted to play college baseball, because honestly, if you're playing college baseball, you're probably not making it to the majors. That's the lower tier typically of baseball players in this country. So, we, we say Alabama, Nick Saban, you're now in charge of the Alabama Red Rovers, and you're now going to have a minor league team, and you can recruit, but you're going to have a limited number of players. You're not going to get 100 players on your team. You're going to get 50, and you're going to have to see if you can win, and you can move up or down, and your salary increases. The players, you're going to get paid. You're, you're going to the minor league for professional football. This is what it is. It's not something else. So now what do we do? What what's the what's the option? If you want to play college football, you go to you go to Penn State and you play college football. If you're really really talented at 18, you go into the farm system and maybe you make it to the NFL. Maybe. You can still draft somebody from those college teams, but maybe you don't need to because you've already been working with these other guys for 4 years on a pro offense. You know, none of this college offense the run pass option uh, 100% of the time, you actually learn how to play football the way it's going to be done at the professional level. And if that works, great. If you don't make it, I guess you walk out with nothing or whatever little money you earned in the time you were on a team. So be it. You've made that decision. There you go. Can't complain on poverty. We don't have to pay the players at the colleges. They can actually be student athletes, and you can go be an athlete. It really only happens with with football because yeah. one done in basketball – so in football, it's where you got it three years. So take away the three years. Okay, you want to come right out of high school and play football? Great. Guess how many kids are going to be able to do that? Very right. few. 
very few, if any. So guess what? You go to college. This is the, the requirement. You don't want to get you, you want to get paid. I guess you have to be a freak of nature and you have to be able to go out and participate against grown men who are going to try to rip your head off. There you go. Problem yeah. solved. Maybe. <laughs> I, I don't know. There's there's no easy answers to that, but I'm I'm generally not in favor of continuing the current system and then also on top of it, you know, paying paying the players. Um, yeah, I don't want to do but, that either. That 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 issue is going to continue to percolate. It's not going to go away. Yeah. Real quick at the end here, uh, one of our listeners from, from Talkback Live, Eric, uh, put put a post out last week. Uh, the Steelers game got moved three times. Eventually played the the Ravens on an afternoon Wednesday afternoon game that was supposed to be played the week previous week on Thanksgiving. Why? Well, what's the NFL going to do here? Because Denver played without quarterbacks last week. Due to stupidity on their own part and their their team their quarterbacks stupidity, but they play without quarterbacks. That was not even that wasn't even an enjoyable game to watch when your practice squad player who played quarterback at Wake Forest, not a powerhouse in football, uh, threw nine passes. It, it was the Tim Tebow era without the actual ability at the position. Yeah. Uh, Pittsburgh got moved a bunch of times. We're playing teams. It just seems like they're trying to make this season what it is, but. Man, well, I think I think the wheels are starting to come off, um, as you said, just in terms of trying to field full rosters when, you know, for instance, and this is happening all over the league. I like the Colts now because I support Philip Rivers. Well, the Colts went into the Titans game, which is actually probably the biggest game of either of those two team seasons, uh, at least up to now. The Colts were without essentially their three best defensive players, all of whom were in, well, maybe two of them. Uh, DeForest Buckner and uh, their other linemen, their two best defensive linemen, and Buckner's one of the best players in the league. And, you know, Derrick Henry and the Titans ran all over them. And the reason that that happened, I'm not saying the Titans wouldn't have still won the game, is because you got guys in these COVID quarantines. To your point, you've got teams playing without four different quarterbacks. Are you going to, what the NFL has to start thinking about is, you may roll into, okay, you're going to find a way to jerry-rig this schedule. You know, we'll have people playing on, you know, Tuesday evening or whatever to try to fit a game in. Number one, you're also, by shortening up these schedules and changing the schedules, you're also putting more guys at risk of injury with how you're doing this. And you may roll into the playoffs, you know, your marquee time of the year, and you may have five or six teams. Oh, guess what? Now um, Aaron Rodgers can't play in the first round because he's in quarantine, pro, right? You're losing, you have the risk of so diminishing your product because of trying to adhere in more and more torturous ways to these COVID protocols. I, I don't really know what they can do right now. I read an article the other day where someone says, well, they got to go immediately into a bubble. Okay, how would you do that? with the NFL in midseason, That's impossible. There's nowhere that you could go to make that work. You know, they did it with the NBA, number one, because they plan to do it. Number two, because the total personnel on an NBA team, when you count players, trainers, coaches, other staff, okay, let's, let's say 30, 30 sort of critical people. The total number of people on a football team, 120? Yeah. At least. Right. And equipment. and equipment. Don't forget that. Right. And equipment. Um, no, that that's not something that they can make feasible. 
Uh, and the other thing is just look at the size of what you need to even be able to play. You're going to go to some, what are you going to have? Like four different football fields in some bubble within a hundred yards of each other as games. Go- no, it's just not, it just can't work. Well, you can't, you can't do back-to-back days in football. No, you, right. You need that six, seven, eight days to be able to recover from the game. So, you know, in the NBA, they can run 50 games in, in a bubble and you play back-to-backs and you have a day off and play back. You can't do that. With and hook- here's the other problem. Yeah. The end, if you start a bubble in midstream, now you don't know who you're bringing into the bubble. Correct. So in other words, you know, the NBA's experiment was, okay, we're all going in at the start of the season. You do your, well, okay, now who knows how many guys right now have tested positive or asymptomatic. You're going to bring them into the bubble. It's like bringing typhoid Mary, you know, many of them potentially into the bubble. So you may actually be spreading it more quickly and more comprehensively by doing that. Well, it it wouldn't work. It 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 could not work because it's just not going to be feasible with the the volume of people that you're looking at 3,500 or more people, probably closer to 5,000 people that you'd need to somehow house, feed, maintain in a location or multiple locations. It just, it's, I mean, can you imagine let's picture a uh, Super Bowl is the Kansas city chiefs versus the green Bay Packers. The chiefs are going for their second consecutive Lombardi trophy. And you know what? Patrick Mahomes and Aaron Rodgers are both in COVID protocol. And according to the league's rules, can't play in the game. Now, the interesting question would be, is whether they would actually allow that to happen, right? Be like, well, the penumbras of subsection eight allow uh, superstar quarterbacks to come out of quarantine in 17 hours. That's a possible scenario that they have to worry about. Well, I think they have to worry about that. But Dave said they will not postpone or change games because of a, because of a competitive yeah. challenge. They've said that. We'll, well see. I, I don't disagree with you. You take out the two, you get to a Super Bowl and you're missing the marquee quarterbacks for both teams or even one team. You still play it. I mean, injury is one thing, but COVID, mm, boy, that's a, uh, I don't know. <laughs> I all that. those, all those advertisers that are paying those billions of dollars aren't going to like a Super Bowl featuring who's the Chiefs backup? No idea. <laughs> yeah, whoever. <laughs> Cleo Lemon. One of my favorite dolphin court, right? That's the point is that you can say that now. Oh, it's not going to affect personnel. Doesn't matter. Well, that's because they haven't yet been confronted with that kind of disaster in a huge, even an AFC championship game. Right. And plus it just tilts the competitive balance. Hmm? Chad Henney is the backup. Chad Henney. Wow. They have no third or fourth. It's Patrick Holmes and Chad Henney. <laughs> yeah, so I, you know, I think they're kind of leaking oil on the way to the uh, end of the regular season. Um, I don't know. I'm sure they're having meetings right now, sort of in a bit of a panic, saying what What are we going to do? Because you can't keep doing this. Oh, uh, we're going to have a Wednesday game. We're. It's it's just not football, as you said, is not a sport where you can start messing around with the schedule like that. These guys need a consistent, essentially six days off before the next game and it's not you don't have the flexibility to be messing around with a schedule in that fashion so it'll be interesting to see how the season finishes well the Steelers are playing on five days rest they're playing the 
the well, and the the Ravens are playing on on four days rest. Right. And here's the thing: we use the term four days rest. What that really means is, and if you know anything about pro football or have read anything, the guys right now are not physically capable of going back out and playing. The sport is so brutal that it usually takes guys three and four days before their bodies are actually in a condition to go all out once again. You start making guys play on four days rest, five days rest, you're going to have more and more serious injuries because the sport, the human body cannot take that kind of punishment that consistently over short periods of time. It just can't. Well, you've said many times there are not 32 human beings on this planet who can play quarterback in the NFL. Not not well. Yeah. I mean, there's people who can take a snap, but to play it well, there are not 32. There certainly well, are. And to play it well and to stay upright for a significant number of games in a regular season. Yeah, and that's just quarterback. Now, the quarterback is probably the most complicated position, but there are not enough people on this planet who can do that well enough to even make the product worth watching. I don't care what you see in college. That's not the same as the pros. So it it's I will be interesting to see how the season finishes, but it's going to be a challenge. And before we well, end, my last question for you is as yeah. a f- football prognostication. <laughs> yeah. If they are at if they are at full strength, huh? Do you think the Steelers can beat the Chiefs? Who's coaching the Chiefs? What do you mean who's coaching the Chiefs? I'm just asking a Serious question. Chad, uh, who's coaching? You mean the, the guy that just won the Super Bowl with the Chiefs? That's, that's the guy I'm talking about, yeah. Andy and, Reid? And the Steelers still have Mike Tomlin, right? Right. Uh, Wait, are you still on the Mike Tomlin's going to be the weakest link? Did you watch the Ravens game? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Tomlin said, I love this. We're going out with Chad the curmudgeon still grumping about the undefeated Pittsburgh Steelers and Mike Tomlin is still the problem. Okay, so think about this. When the Patriots went 18 and 0, they made people nervous. When the when the What do you mean they made people nervous? Well, people didn't go in going, "Oh man, I'm playing I'm playing the undefeated Patriots. I, we could have a really tough game." It's it's not a, you know, it's like, "Well, we have just as much shot as anybody else." When the Bears won, they had an aura. You're saying they had an aura about them. They had an aura, and they they had won a couple championships prior to that, so it wasn't like it was totally out of the realm. Uh, the Bears, who had come kind of slowly gotten better, they had a dominant defense. They had no offense to speak of other than uh, sweetness. The Steelers, unfortunately, and this is coaching in my opinion, play to the level of competition. I think Wednesday they got bumped so many times, and they thought. At the Ravens don't have Lamar Jackson. They're missing their running backs. They're missing a lot of key people. So we don't have to really take this too seriously because we'll end up winning. And they did, but they really didn't. They should have blown out that team. They, they RG3 had yeah. some, some well, night. Tomlin even play. said they didn't play well. But here's the thing. You're going to have lulls. You're going to have games where you don't play at your best. The bottom line is... At the end of the day, the Steelers still have not lost a football game. That's true. So if they all if they show up and all play well, do you think that they can beat the Chiefs? I think they have a shot to beat the Chiefs, but every they have to play well. They have to have a running game that where uh, James Conner runs forward instead of side to side. 
he's, he's, he's got Franco Harris disease in the early 80s where he, he thought running sideline to sideline was actually gaining yards, and it's not. He's trying to look for those holes. Just run forward. Do you think – here's a fun last question. Yeah. Do you think that if Andy Reid was coaching the Steelers and Mike Tomlin was coaching the Chiefs, that if they played this season, the Steelers would then be favored to win that game with all the personnel being the same. Yes. Wow. I, I think Andy Reid has his own issues and there's been broadcast many, many times. Oh, well, he, I mean, look, Andy Reid is an offensive genius. There's no question about he's, it. He's got timeout problems. He, he's got, well, that's, I mean, that's sort of the, that's the conventional wisdom on him. Yeah, he had some clock management stuff. But in terms of putting together with the talent he has, I mean, he I think he's he's kind of the Bill Walsh. They don't run the same scheme, but no. the Bill Walsh of this era in terms of his ability to utilize talent. Yeah, Patrick Mahomes is a freak. He is. Oh, amazing. he is. He can he on the run. He can throw that ball like he's standing still like other quarterbacks have to stand still to do. I'm pretty sure that I could coach the Chiefs. Um tomorrow and just <laughs> essentially say guys you know the playbook patrick just kind of do your thing yes. in other words yeah andy Reidus has an embarrassment of riches on that team but he also maximizes oh yeah uh just don't forget don't forget how well alex smith who's not a bad quarterback and actually we might talk about him in another his story is incredible yeah. but alex smith when he was running that offense for andy reed was a top yeah. 10 quarterback yeah, he wasn't bad. I mean, he's he's got his own issues, but he's he wasn't bad under that offense. Yes, if Andy Reid was coaching the Steelers and had been coaching them all season, not just flipping for the game. Yes, I think the Steelers would win that game handily. Handily. Uh, handily. Because I think they have enough offensive weapons, and I think he would coach the players to actually, regardless of what Roethlisberger says, I need to throw the ball better. No, you hit him in the hands, and they dropped it. That's not your throwing. That's their catching. And, and Andy Reid's going to make them catch better? I think they would be coached to the point where they would learn to catch consistently. <laughs> are you are you now laying at Tomlin's feet the fact that the Steelers receivers have the dropsies? I'm laying at Tomlin's feet that I think he is a very lackadaisical coach. He, he'd rather be their buddy than their coach. And I think Andy Reid likes to be liked, but I think at the end of the day, he's their coach and they respect him as a coach. I don't think they necessarily respect Tom. I think the last couple of years you've seen that in the locker room. And well, you've certainly seen it from that. from one particular player. Yes. Um, well, Antonio Brown, Le'Veon Bell. You can name. When you player. see Mike Tomlin, th does the the word lackadaisical come to mind? The guy looks like he's he's intense. got a level of intensity that he's going to like burn holes through your body. But why does why would you all these stories about him letting things go with Antonio Brown? Letting things go with Le'Veon Le'Veon Bell. What else has he let go? I think he should have gotten in Ben's face a couple years ago and said, "Stop being a screw up. Put in the time. You look like a fat slob. Get out there and do your job." And he didn't. <laughs> how do you know? How do you know he didn't do that? Well, because for he looked like that for years, and he was still getting contracts. So obviously, either upper management didn't agree with him, or they just didn't care. He looked. He slimmed down. He looks like he's actually concerned about being there. I could not have said that three, four years ago, even last year before he got hurt. You yeah. are you are a rough you are a rough grader. Um, he paid a lot of money to play this this game. Well, no, I'm just talking about Tomlin. Like I don't, 
again, I'm I'm not really carrying his water, and I I'm open to the idea that he's not necessarily the greatest tactical coach. And he clearly made mistakes. He allowed Antonio Brown in particular to become a locker room cancer. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think he simply didn't know how to deal with that at some point. But I don't know how you can be sitting here and saying that you're still unhappy with the coach of a team that's 11 and 0. It's not the 11 and 0. I, I think that's amazing. And if you'd asked me at the beginning of the season, if they were 11, end up 11 and 5, I'd be like, okay, pretty good. And, and they're going to, I don't think they're going to go undefeated. I think they're going to lose somewhere along the line because I think they keep playing with that edge so tightly. They're not going to be able to come back from it. And I think that's a problem. I think the defense is improved. And I think at times they look dominant. And certainly if you get up on, get up on the team, they can, they can just tee off on you. Losing Bud Dupree is going to hurt them on the pass rush for sure. Uh, and I don't think Alex Highsmith is Bud Dupree. And I, three years ago, I would have said Bud Dupree was worth, you know, anything but he's shown he's actually putting in the extra work. It's not that Tomlin's a horrible coach. That's not what I mean. I think he doesn't get the most out of his players. I think there's there's residual ability left that he just doesn't push to get. And I'm not saying he has to be uh, Bill Belichick. I, he's not. They're different people. But Andy Reid gets a little bit more out of his players. He takes His defense got smoked a couple years ago, and they've improved. They're not awesome on defense but they're much improved and they got a great offense Tomlin has gotten the defense better as the head coach I'm still not sold on the coordinators for Pittsburgh offensive or defensive I think they they get into ruts especially on offense where they they run run and then they throw run run throw I feel like I'm watching Penn State in the 80s (laughs) no no it was run 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 yeah, well, okay. But they, they eventually say, well, we should probably throw this game. And, and I don't think Ben throwing 50-plus times in a game is really good for the outcome. I, I don't I don't think that's the message for success. I think the running game for Pittsburgh is not great. I think it's... Well, I, I will say, uh, and we will conclude on this because we're running way long, but I, en- I always enjoy Chad's uh, <laughs> cantankerous takes on uh, the Steelers. Yeah. Um, I just hope that we get to see a fully healthy Steelers team against a fully healthy Chiefs team. I think those are the two, clearly the two best teams in the AFC. Mm -hmm. I think there's a huge gap. Um, I mean, are there some other teams that could potentially, you know, in in a one-game scenario, if they got hot, sure. But I would like to see that game. I think the Chiefs would probably win, but I think the Steelers of the Steelers are pretty well situated to give them trouble um for a lot of reasons as you said if connor connor has to run well but they've got a guy in roethlisberger who's not going to be intimidated by the moment and they've got a defense particularly their their defensive line Mm -hmm. that if anybody is going to be able to pressure mahomes uh the steelers the steelers can bring it so i i would really like to see an afc championship game between those two teams at full strength I would like to see the Chiefs get knocked out before that happens, so that I don't have. They don't have to. That's play. not going to happen. That's not going to happen. <laughs> hey, the Ra- the Raiders beat them once, so they can be beaten. Yeah, yeah. The Raiders also just lost to uh, the Falcons, like forty-two yeah. to negative six. That was the, <laughs> that was the hangover from losing the Chiefs. The week I before. guess. I guess. So we will see. We will see. We'll find. We'll have some more reviews from Chad about Mike Tomlin uh. grumping after they beat the Chiefs and claiming that they didn't maximize their potential. Hey, four seasons of eight and eight with Roethlisberger quarterback and Le'Veon Bell and Antonio Brown. I, I'm sorry, I can't 
I can't think. I can't accept that. We shall see. All right. All right. We've done enough. More than enough. Thank you for joining us. I'm Chad. I'm Tony. Good night. This has been a Hannah Tree production.